My name is Barry O'Leary and you are listening to The Global Step. Welcome to The Global Step, a podcast created to educate listeners on how companies should expand internationally. I chat to a range of guests from entrepreneurs, mentors, advisors, investors and also academics to see how young companies can best avoid the pitfalls of expansion and successfully take the global step into new markets. In today's episode, I speak with Frank Hannigan. Frank is a partner in Strategy Crowd. Frank is one of Ireland's most experienced startup gurus. He has done a hell of a lot in the startup business world. Founder, consultant, advisor, investor, and senior executive. A business graduate from Ireland's most prestigious college, Trinity College Dublin, Frank is also a mentor and coach with Enterprise Ireland, helping Irish companies expand internationally. I spoke with Frank on a range of topics, including the characteristics of an Irish startup, a guided process for international expansion, and an overview of how he took his company, You Get It Back, and expanded successfully outside of Ireland. I learned a lot from speaking with Frank and I hope you can also learn from and enjoy the conversation. Hi Frank, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Let me start, before we delve into the big questions, let me start by asking if you could give a brief overview of your experience in you know, international business, strategy, startup, mentoring, consulting. That would be great. Sure. Well, I, I'm a partner uh, at Strategy Crowd. Strategy Crowd is a consultancy with 24, we call ourselves, consulting entrepreneurs. So we're, we're people who have an academic interest in innovation and strategy, but we've also actually done the work. So we've all started companies or founded companies or raised money for companies uh, and advised companies. Uh, we, we work with Enterprise Ireland in Ireland, uh, European Commission, European Union, the uh, European Bank EBRD, and also the World Bank. Uh, we work with companies, primarily SMEs, and everywhere from Mongolia to Monaghan. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> wow. that's really what I do for a living. Super. As an experienced mentor and consultant, how do you kind of, we'll say, view, we'll say, startups in general? Um, you know, what issues do they face? I know you used a really great metaphor with me uh, recently was, you know, two tectonic plates. Maybe you can explain yes. that a bit more. Yeah, this is from a, a very good academic from uh, Canada, and he describes strategy as being very straightforward. It's about two tectonic plates hitting each other. One is massively dynamic, and that's reality, which is constantly changing. So if you want to understand that, you need to be deeply read, you need to be incredibly curious to understand what's happening out there. But the other one, which uh, startups don't spend enough time on, is very stable, and that's our intentions. Uh, most companies, if they spent more time, would understand and capture and share what it really is that they want to achieve with the company. And if you, if you can do that, you're halfway there. Uh, say you know obviously you and I are, are both Irish we're uh, based in Ireland what are the we'll say the difficulties you know an Irish company and, and guys that co- and companies that come to you what what are what are the difficulties they face from being from Ireland I think 
it's actually a huge advantage because we are an island. There is no choice. We have to look outside uh, our, our domestic market. And for, for most companies I meet, if they are ambitious, you know, if they are able to solve a problem that really matters and it's big, you know, my recommendation is get off the island, uh, try and find a group of sweet spot customers that can understand and can value what they do for a living. Uh, for me, I think most of them, their first option should be the US. Uh, in fact, most Irish companies will traditionally look at the UK as their first step off the island. Yeah. But in many ways, it's quite hard to do to achieve success there. Uh, UK is part of Europe. It's it's quite conservative. Uh, I suppose English companies have a collective memory of working with startups and and that not working out. Okay. And for in the UK culture, failure is is a is a huge challenge for for enterprise clients. Yeah. So for an early stage company to get accepted by big English companies is in many ways harder than being accepted by US companies mm. who, in contrast, have a collective memory of their companies working with early stage companies, succeeding uh, with those companies and moving forward. So I think the, the biggest challenge for Irish startups is to look west as opposed to uh, look east as they traditionally would have done. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I know. Um, as uh, I'm not as experienced or knowledgeable as yourself, Frank, and and that's that's uh, new to me. Now I would have been, you know, of the mind that you know, England being you know, would say close to us and probably having the same tastes and a lot of things as as Irish people. But that that's a great take. So thanks for that. Maybe in your experience, what are some of the companies you have experience with that have, we'll say, embarked on international expansion? It can be successful, it can be, you know, maybe um, a failure, but, you know, obviously we learn from failures and success. So anything that maybe companies that you've worked with that, we'll say, you can remember as a good case study? Well, You Get It Back was a company I founded uh, back in 2004. And it was, it was the, the premise was that people lose things uh, in huge numbers, they lose laptops, uh, cell phones, etc., and th- they're found primarily by employees. So we created a global platform that allowed employees and hotels, taxi drivers, airport uh, staff, etc., to very rapidly find the owner of these lost mobile devices. The interesting thing in terms of uh, strategy is we had done a lot of qualitative and quantitative research before we launched, and what. Uh, what the consumer told us was they loved the product and they told us uh, in the US and in Europe that they would pay typically 10 euros, $10 uh, for the product. The reality when we actually went out to the marketplace is that they loved the pro- product, but they would, they would pay $0 for it. Okay. <laughs> so that was, that was very, very humbling and very scary. And uh, what we had to do was... Uh, circle back as a, a leadership team and find new problems to solve because we knew the customers loved the product but we had to find somebody in a triangle uh, who would give the product to our customers but perhaps pay for it so uh, what the, 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 the companies we found were uh, companies like Best Buy uh, and their problem was how could they attach more extended warranties and insurance products each time they sold a mobile device like a laptop or a, a mobile phone and that in the end that was 
that led to us to to a level of success. And in the U.S., our sales grew very rapidly. Uh, the company became uh, the fastest growing company on the Deloitte Fast Fifty in Ireland. Wow. So that was an interesting experience. Wow! 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 And uh, is is the company still going today, Frank? Or, or how yes. does it? Oh, super! It's, it's still. I'm not involved in it, uh, as an executive anymore, but yeah, it's still it's still working at a Cork. Awesome. Uh, working with US and European clients. Super, super. Is there a rough process, we'll say, for companies? Are, the day they start thinking about international expansion, is there a rough process to to stick to, we'll say, to capture their first market in a new, uh, in a new international market? For me, the key thing is research. Uh, we, we, in Ireland, we're very lucky. We have Enterprise Ireland who have international offices across the globe and uh, some very powerful organisations in the US, so they have op- operations in uh, the Valley, in Chicago, Boston, and New York. Uh, and the, the key thing is to get as much information as possible because while you know the international work I have done suggests that business and people are pretty much the same across the planet, there's a thin veneer of difference, which is you know about where they live, about their family, and about their personality. And understanding that thin veneer is incredibly important uh, I mean there have been some very high, high uh, profile cases where global companies like Tesco have entered the US market yeah. and screwed up massively because they didn't understand the local culture and they didn't understand the minute differences in uh, consumer behaviour uh, and, and that's that that's the most important thing the rough process has to start with really deep understanding uh, that comes from research. Gotcha. We'll say maybe going down to we'll say the the company itself. Then Frank, who are the key internal people to drive the international expansion? And, and maybe an extra question, something that I've always wondered was: Does there need to be we'll say in a company that's looking to expand? Does there need to be um, you know a certain amount of employees? We'll say certain defined processes, or is it just you know? If, if there's an opportunity to expand and, and an opportunity to sell the product, just, just go for it. Uh, yeah, this is a, it's an interesting question. Now, there, isn't, there isn't one, if you like, simple template to follow, but I, I think w- one of the key things I've seen myself is that the CEO needs to be in the main market. Okay. So if, if your company is going to focus on the US market, my, my strong advice uh, from what I've seen in the past is that the CEO needs to be there. You know, their family, their kids need to be in the same schools as the kind of customers uh, that they want to do business with. So you, you need to basically um, be immersed culturally uh, in the company. And the person... In, in most companies that kind of exemplifies culture is the, the CEO so th- I think they need to be there I, I don't think you can you can win the US market by remote control okay. I think you need to be there awesome awesome and then uh, jumping we'll say to the to the negative side of the risks um, what, what would you say are the particular risks um, you know these companies who are you know obviously not fully grown fully defined yet what risks do they face we'll say going to the US or even the UK market Frank well I think that the, the, the biggest risk is that there is no market for your goods and it takes you too long to recognise that so uh, I'd be a very strong proponent of piloting you know finding a way to inexpensively 
fail fast, often, and cheaply. So you you test your value proposition, you test your assumption about who your sweet spot customer is for that uh, value proposition, and you you fail quickly. So you know you get it back would be a perfect example. Yeah, we we did spend quite a lot of money, but we were very we were very frugal with time. So when we discovered that selling uh, to the consumer directly was not going to make us uh, successful or sustainable, we pivoted very rapidly and found a new way to make money mm-hmm. from the value proposition. So uh, I, I think that's the key thing. And what I would say from personal experience is that no research comes even close to confirming demand. It gives you a very good map of where uh, demand should be, but you have to be out there in the streets. You have to be out there actually selling, and uh, that experience is what's going to t- tell you if you have a business or a hobby. You mentioned at the start, uh, Frank, your company does business from, we'll say, Monaghan to Mongolia, I think you said. Are there certain, we'll say, markets with higher barriers to entry than others? You know, we, we talked a bit about the US, maybe the UK. But we'll say going into Asia and going into, we'll say, other countries in Europe and even Africa, do they have higher barriers or to entry than, we'll say, the US and the UK? They certainly do. Um, you know, the, the, you know, if you think about business managing three things, which would be uh, managing scarce resources, managing scarcity of time, and also understanding and managing their capacity for risk, if you go outside the US and EU markets, there is a much higher level of risk, and you know the the propensity to fail is going to be much higher. Okay. I think what what we've seen in Europe is that you know our approach to uh, addressing global markets is quite different to the US. So it, if I was to imagine Europe in twenty years' time, I don't see that many unicorns. I don't see many Facebooks uh, likely to emerge, and they haven't over the last twenty years. So. I'm saying that based on on you know evidence. Mm-hmm. What what Europe talks about is the success of models like Mittelstand in Germany, where companies grow organically and they grow inter intergenerally intergenerationally to organisations of less than a thousand staff typically, but these companies dominate a small sliver of global supply chains. So, you know, in economics, we talk about this being the atomization of global supply chains, where companies are designed around a passion for a very discrete uh, business area, a very discrete uh, intellectual uh, area of intellectual property and reputation. And those companies in Germany uh, have taken on all comers to be globally dominant. So if you think about people involved in the automotive industry, you know, they face 20 years of competition from lower cost economies like China and mm-hmm. Malaysia, and they've beaten them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, I'm delighted to see Enterprise Ireland uh, and in general Irish competition uh, policy being around that model. So you know, building companies that are profound uh, and loved globally by a very discreet client set um, rather than building you know, the go big or go home strategy, which is the US strategy. Yeah. I don't think that suits us. It's not, it doesn't suit us for loads of reasons, but it's not our soul. Like yeah. in, in Ireland, we are building companies that you know, want to be small but global. 
yeah. that's that's our future i think yeah yeah very very much agree yeah in today's personal quick fire five i asked frank five quick questions ranging from what his favorite business book is to what industry he sees the biggest growth in in the near future i started the quick fire five by asking frank what company he admires most has to be Apple, uh, but to be honest, everybody says that, so I'm not going to even talk about Apple. <laughs> my second favorite is LinkedIn, yeah. and uh, LinkedIn has become part of my daily ritual. I think they have made a huge impact. They have made sense yeah. of uh, global uh, business connectivity, and uh, I think what they've done is astonishing. Very proud to know some of the, the senior people in, in LinkedIn and to have been mentioned in um, their founder's first book. Oh, wow. So that, that's got to be my favourite company, my second favourite company. <laughs> I agree. Link, I think LinkedIn is fantastic and uh, long may it last. Second one for you, Frank. Uh, industry de- uh, destined for the biggest growth in the next five years? Yeah, I, I, I'd probably be expected to talk about something in, in technology, AI or, or virtual reality. For me, I think the most interesting uh, industry and the one that I'm focusing on uh, increasingly is premium food. So this is food as an experience. So what I imagine in 60 months' time is that we'll consume a lot less calories, but each of those calories will have meaning. So we'll have the disposable income to ensure that each time we eat, it really matters. So my, my guess is that processed food is moving towards commodity uh, and that digital marketing and low-cost distribution will create a huge community of food entrepreneurs running small but perfectly formed companies. Mm. And I think Irish companies, because of our reputation around quality and uh, and, and uh, confidence around our food, yeah. I think we're going to play a big role in that market. Super. Yeah, as you said, it's not a, a traditional answer you gave. AI is the one that uh, everyone seems to be talking about in virtual reality and, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, good take. Um, third one for you, Frank. Uh, so you deal with a lot of companies, obviously, in your role. What's one company we don't know now that we will know in three years? I think the, the, there, are, there are many, but I, I would pick out FoodCloud. Uh, it's a social enterprise. The problem it solves is how to deal with food waste from big corporates like Tesco and Aldi, uh, and then how to use that uh, waste to solve the problem of providing tens of thousands of meals for people who otherwise would not get fed. Mm. Uh, they're big in Ireland. They're growing in the UK. I expect them to be a global business in the next three to, to, to five years. Wow. Uh, and it's because they're simple, they're process-driven, and most importantly, they're purpose-driven. Yeah. So they're, I, I, was, I was quite interested at the weekend. We went out with uh, a bunch of people for lunch. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the couples talked about you know, the fact that they're, they act, he actually works for Apple, but he said, I'm not going through the Apple um, community uh, program. I'm, I'm working with an Irish company called Food Cloud. I give two hours uh, every week, and I drive uh, to the depot for two hours getting food from Tesco to charities. Mm. That just made me realize that they, they're breaking through to the mainstream. Super, super, super. Okay, Food Cloud, uh, we heard it here first. So oh, thanks, Frank. Okay, maybe we'll say on your off time, Frank, what we'll say is your favourite business book to delve into? Maybe you've read it more than once. Well, I, I, I'm going to mention two books that I've just got and haven't read yet, but I've, I've been delving into them 
in in snippets online for the last uh, couple of years. A guy called Yuval Noah Harari. He's a, a Israeli academic. Uh, I've just picked up Sapiens and Homo Deus, who are uh, they're his first two books. And from what I've seen, the guy has immense ambition, and the books have a, you know reflect that ambition. So I think that's going to be fun over the next couple of weeks. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Um, and last one before we wrap things up, Frank. Um, what's your favorite thing to do to unwind away from the stresses of uh, strategy cloud? That's no stress. <laughs> I, I, I'm all that. But I, I certainly, in, in the past, I have sailed an awful lot, and I probably will uh, sail in the future. I walk a lot, and you know, as we mentioned, I, I read an awful lot. At the moment, uh, the thing that's really capturing my imagination is researching my ancestry so mm. ancestry will come is taking up a lot of my time and uh, very very interesting it's uh, it's been an excuse to read an awful lot about irish history and uh, to find out a bit more about my own my own background so i have oh. become a bit of a, an ancestry bore so i'll kind of stop just there <laughs> have you found anything uh, unusual in your past your family's past <laughs> yeah well i i, I my my Paternal line goes back uh, to 465 AD to a guy called Connell, who was the first Irish chieftain to be baptised by St. Patrick. So that's that's pretty cool. Wow. Wow. That is cool. Yeah. Well, uh, Frank, we'll stop it there. So and uh, really appreciate your time. As I said, thanks a million for all the great takes. I've I've learned so much already. Hopefully the listeners are are in the same boat as me and and, uh, really benefited from that. So uh, Frank Hannigan, thanks a million for joining me. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Global Step. I hope you can tune in again soon.